Hello and welcome to Herbert Smith Freehills Japan Arbitration Podcast. My name is Yosuke Homa and I'm a senior associate and a registered foreign attorney or Gaikako Jimu Bengoshi in our arbitration practice based in Tokyo. Today I'm here with our head of disputes in Japan and Tokyo managing partner David Gilmore and fellow partner Craig Shepard who specializes in construction disputes. Today we're going to briefly discuss key international arbitration related developments from 2020. Many of the points that we'll discuss in today's podcast is covered in greater detail on our Global Arbitration Notes blog, which you can access from this podcast's webpage. So please do take a look there if anything is of particular interest, or of course, please feel free to reach out to David, Craig, or myself. I wanted to kick things off by noting that last year, five countries acceded to the 1958 Convention on the Recognition and Enforcement of Foreign Arbitrary Awards, more commonly referred to as the New York Convention. These were the Seychelles, Palau, Tonga, Ethiopia, and Sierra Leone. This is obviously great for parties that have significant business with counterparties from those countries, as arbitration agreements can be included in future contracts, and there's more confidence that arbitral awards can be enforced in those countries much more easily compared to judgments issued by foreign courts. Also, now with 166 countries acceded to the New York Convention, it demonstrates the continued popularity and acceptance globally of international arbitration as a dispute resolution mechanism. I now wanted to turn to arbitration institution rules. We have seen a couple of key arbitration institutions revise their rules recently. Starting with David, perhaps you can comment on the key new features of the 2020 London Court of International Arbitration Rules for our listeners. Uh, thank you, Yossi. Yes, happy to. The um, 2020 LCIA rules came into force towards the end of last year, 1st of October 2020. Uh, a number of changes, but perhaps helpful to look at three key updates that came across in those rule changes as follows. First, the new rules allow for multiple arbitrations to be commenced in a single composite request and also expand the circumstances in which consolidation of related arbitrations may be available to the parties. Secondly, the rules also confirm the tribunal's existing wide discretion in relation to all aspects of arbitral procedure, including now an express power to order early determination of claims or counterclaims, which are manifestly without legal merit. Uh, and finally, there is also a move towards electronic submissions and communications as the uh, default and an express power for the tribunals to order virtual hearings. So in that way, reflecting the reality of many international arbitration hearings at the moment. Thanks very much, David. Uh, turning now to Craig, the new International Chamber of Commerce arbitration rules also came into force even more recently. What are the key changes here? Uh, that's right, Yosuke, they, they did. Uh, the 2021 ICC rules came into force on the 1st of January this year. Uh, the old rules were, in fact, already pretty up to date because they dated just back to 2017. So the ICC is, I think, doing a really good job in keeping things up to date. Uh, there were five 
main changes to the rules which are relevant, I think, to uh, parties finding themselves in arbitration. And, and interestingly, there's a decent amount of overlap between the changes to the ICC rules and the changes which David just mentioned at the LCIA. Um, first, there's been a, a new provision for virtual hearings and a shift away from filing everything in paper. Second, um, the new rules allow the tribunal to limit changes to party representation, that's the, the lawyers that the parties appoint, when it comes to conflicts of interest. That, that may seem a little bit odd, but that's to stop the guerrilla tactic where uh, someone looks to appoint a lawyer deliberately to create a conflict within the tribunal and so derail the arbitration. Um, there is a requirement for parties to disclose certain sorts of uh, third party funding arrangements. The ICC has the power in exceptional circumstances to appoint the entire arbitral tribunal to avoid unequal treatments, uh, even where this deviates from what the parties had agreed in their contract. And as with the LCIA rules, there have been amendments to the consolidation and joinder provisions to allow for joinder of cases after the confirmation or appointment of the tribunal. Uh, this is a really complicated area, but basically it allows for better coordination in cases where there are a number of disputes or a number of different parties. Thank you, Craig. David, what are your thoughts on what the revisions to these institutional rules signify for users of international arbitration? Well, it, it's clear that these recent revisions reflect the desire of arbitral institutions to keep their processes current and relevant for commercial parties, even as the demands on the arbitral process change over time. I think it fair to say that the challenges to the typical arbitration procedure brought about by the pandemic are obvious prompts for change, but there are other relevant influences, um, including the growth around the world of markets for third party funding in arbitration, uh, a tendency for tribunals to make greater use of tribunal secretaries in an effort to improve efficiency and limit costs, and of course the increased use of arbitration in multi-party or multi-contract scenarios. Thanks, David. I now wanted to turn to our last topic today, which is the non-interventionist approach taken by the English courts, which is important for London seated arbitrations. Now, the Judiciary of England and Wales recently published the minutes of the Commercial Court User Group meeting that took place in November last year. This provides us with some information and statistics for the legal year of October 2019 to September 2020, in relation to challenges to arbitral awards under Section 68 of the Arbitration Act, and also appeals on a point of law under Section 69 of the Arbitration Act. Craig, uh, perhaps I can turn to you to discuss the Section 68 challenges towards. What's the pattern that we're seeing here? Certainly. I'll, let me begin by just saying how Section 68 works. So section 68 is the provision which allows an arbitration to be challenged for serious irregularity. The stats show that there were 16 applications to challenge awards um, under Section 68, uh, which is a drop of three from the year before. As 
an arbitration lawyer, I think it is reassuring to see that the number of applications is so tremendously low, uh, not just the change from uh, 19 to 16, but the fact that only 16 out of the thousands and thousands of English seated cases that there, that there are, only 16 resulted in um, applications being made. And of those 16, and only one of the applications was successful, which I think goes a long way to show that the English courts are not interventionist. And the fact that everyone knows that the English courts are not interventionist means that people are not inclined to make applications if they have, if they have no merit. But the one successful case itself, which is the Extrada Coal decision, um, that was a very unusual case, which turned entirely on its own facts. And I, I'm not sure there's a great deal that, that we can draw from it. And, and certainly uh, there is no time to uh, go through the case now. We do have an arbitration blog which uh, sets out a, a summary of the decision. On the unsuccessful challenges uh, side, um, there were a number of quite useful decisions reported and perhaps the uh, most readable of them all is in the case of um, ASA against TL, where the commercial court uh, looked at an application and described it as being a challenge to findings where the arbitrator had taken a different view of matters contrary to the submissions of one party. Um, the court wasn't interested in that. Uh, seeking to attack an arbitrator's findings of fact for her evaluation of the evidence on the basis of procedural unfairness when there was none, said the court. So uh, it fairly damningly threw out the application and said, basically, you can't come here and complain just because the arbitral tribunal reached a decision which was different to the one that you, you wanted. Again, we have an arbitration blog which discusses the decision and uh, ASA is well worth reading. Thanks very much, Craig. David, uh, what about appeals on points of law under Section 69? Yeah, they're similar sort of levels. So there were 22 Section 69 applications that were finally resolved across this period last year. And that level is more or less in line with, with prior years experience. Um, the Commercial Court confirmed that the historical average um, is at around 5% of Section 69 appeals being successful. And um, so there's a similar story here. That's, that's, that's an intimidating figure for appellants and fully confirms the difficulty in bringing an appeal based on an error of law in an arbitration award rendered in London. To give you um, a flavour or an example, last year saw a rare successful appeal in the case of Allegro and Yela, where the commercial court disagreed with the legal analysis behind the GAFTA appeal board's decision that a shipper had repudiated a sale and purchase agreement by failing to provide an amended shipment schedule when that was demanded of them by the buyer. Um, but for present purposes, it's noteworthy that even in this successful case, this rare successful case, the commercial court was obviously at pains to stress that the English courts should strive to uphold arbitration awards, reading them in a commercial and a reasonable way, rather than with a meticulous legal eye to pick holes, inconsistencies and faults in awards. So happily, it seems that the UK courts remain determined to resist any temptation to wade into reviews of arbitral awards and fully intend to uphold the arbitral process and its outcome wherever possible.
Thank you very much, David and Craig. So international arbitration certainly seems a popular dispute resolution mechanism for international businesses. And it's encouraging to see that the English courts remain supportive of arbitration and the arbitral institutions keeping pace with the needs of its users by ensuring that their rules are current. If you have any questions at all about this podcast or international arbitration generally, please don't hesitate to contact any one of us. Thank you very much for listening to our podcast today.